The weight loss revolution is underway, kicked off by a new injectable drug. It's been shown to help patients lose up to 15% of their weight, but it comes with a high out-of-pocket cost for most people. What else is on the horizon for patients dealing with obesity, and how is the medical profession ensuring everyone can benefit? I think we're at a watershed moment. This is really sort of an inflection point, if you will, in thinking about the potential change in the landscape and how we conceptualize treatment of obesity. Dr. Jamie Ard is co-director of the Weight Management Center at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. He's at the forefront of research that's looking at how new obesity treatments can not only help patients lose weight, but also control their type 2 diabetes. What we you know, are seeing and, and the reason they tend to be so effective is that we're actually having a direct impact on the pathways that control the hunger signals and the signals for satiation, how full you are after consuming a certain portion of food. And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Dr. Ard, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, you know, I wonder if we could just start with the with the bigger picture. You know, obesity has such a profound impact. Uh, I think since 1975, uh, worldwide it has tripled. Uh, certainly in America, uh, 40% of all the population are impacted by obesity. But if you were Hispanic, uh, it is higher than that. And if you were a black American, it was even higher than that. I wonder if you could just set the stage about the scope of this problem uh, from your vantage point. And then we have so much other things to cover, but we thought we'd start there. Yeah, so you're correct in that the prevalence of obesity has definitely increased, and we've seen dramatic increases, um, not only in the <clears throat> average body mass index and the proportion of individuals who um, meet the qualifications for having a body mass index over 30, which is uh, technically defined <clears throat> as being um, qualifying for obesity. Um, we've also seen uh, increases in the proportion of individuals who have the most severe levels of obesity, meaning they have a body mass index greater than 40. And that category seems to be growing faster than lots of others. Um, we're talking mostly about adults in the, in that um, statistic that you uh, referenced earlier, mm -hmm. but the same the same issue is affecting children, <clears throat> and we're seeing this lifespan um, sort of issue in terms of the impact of the what we call the obesogenic environment having a fairly broad impact on um, the entire population. But as you noted, some groups of individuals seem to be more adversely affected by the obesogenic environment than others. And those individuals tend to be uh, from groups that are historically disadvantaged or have more uh, challenges when it comes to social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. And we, we think that part of that uh, disproportionate impact is related to you know, sort of a disproportionate exposure to the obesogenic environment. And that leads to um, higher risk of developing and sustaining a higher body weight. Well, you know, uh, both Margaret and I want to, first of all, congratulate you on your election to the National Academy of Medicine. And, and we want to start off with the news that the oral drug from Pfizer uh, 
led to faster weight loss than the weekly inject, injections of Ozemic, uh, which is an injectable we've heard so much about uh, in the news. What, what's your take on this development? Well, I, I think it's a really interesting development in that um, you've now, you know, we're on the pathway to potentially add another option that's an oral option versus an injectable. Um, I think having additional options for patients is always a good thing. More tools in the toolbox is always good. It leads to um, healthy competition in the marketplace. So hopefully prices will decrease as a result. I think it's also good for patients who don't like the idea of giving themselves an injection. They might have a, an oral medication option uh, or people who might have a series of adverse events or side effects with one type of medication might find that another one is more suitable. So this is also um, very good news. Well, Dr. Arj, I really uh, appreciated going back a few moments uh, your comments on the social determinants of health, the racial uh, and ethnic disparities, and the obesogenic environment. And I, I hope our listeners were, were catching all of that. Uh, sometimes I think that news is eclipsed uh, by the news on the uh, nightly broadcasts on media, on uh, television and other media about the pharmaceuticals. I think we hear three times as much sometimes about the pharmaceuticals as the other factors, but I, I think there's been so much news and, and really, I think, confusion, particularly about Wegovy. And I'm I'm wondering if you could, for our listeners, uh, maybe just talk about the profile, if there is one, of the kind of patients that you think it's really indicated for and that you're prescribing it for yourself. Yeah, I, th I think these are really interesting points to make. Um, so thanks for bringing this up. I, I think that the first thing to say is in the healthcare space and in, in the space, especially where we are focused on treating obesity as the, you know, sort of primary service that we provide for our patients. Um, one of the things that we really want to help underscore is that when we talk about obesity, we're talking about not just a number on the scale, but we're also talking about um, a negative health impact. So excess weight that is leading to negative health consequences. Um, and that can range from a number of different things to, you know, from knee osteoarthritis and pain to back pain or mechanical related issues to metabolic health related issues like type 2 diabetes or prediabetes or hypertension. And so when we are treating patients um, with these new types of agents, that is the target population that we're really thinking about are individuals who are having negative health consequences of obesity. So that's the first point. The second point I think is that um, when we look at these new agents, these uh, what we call GLP-1s um, um, that activate the receptors that, that allow for the body to produce more GLP-1, um, what what we you know are seeing in, in the reason they tend to be so effective is that we're actually having a direct impact on the pathways that control the hunger signals and the signals for satiation, how full you are after consuming a certain portion of food. And it's really sort of hitting the reset button for a lot of people who will say, you know, I haven't, I haven't had that sensation of fullness in some time. And, and the recognition of that is now much more clear as a result of being um, treated with these this new agent or these new agents. And so that is a really important distinguishing factor for people who say, 
yeah, I kind of don't have that signal to know when to stop eating. Like my my signal to stop eating is a visual cue or either the food is all gone. Those are the individuals who we find to be really um, responsive to this type of treatment. And hmm. when you combine that with the health concerns and, and some of the specific issues that we also know that these types of drugs address, um, like um improving glycemic control when we see people who have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes in addition to obesity um, using this type of medication really gives us a lot of bang for the buck in terms of the you know health effects that we see not only from the medication directly on say blood glucose control but also on the weight management piece as well you know i may have some of this wrong but just as i understand it wagovia that lacks a uniform set of recommendations for when people should take it. And, and also that you're the incoming president of the BC Society, uh, also uh, leading an expert committee that's developing recommendations for when to start patients on it. Can you give us a preview of what you're looking at and likely to recommend? Yeah, so what you're referring to, Mark, is that we're going to be working on what we call a standards of care mm -hmm. uh, document. And the standards of care really are going to be designed to help clinicians, both in the primary care space, as well as providers in the specialty space of obesity management, to really understand what do we think of as standard practice across the board and what are the evidence, what's the evidence that we have that helps to support that? Um, and some of that may be in the form of clinical trials. Some of that may be real world evidence. Some of that may be expert opinion, but we want to give clinicians a way to inform their thinking and decision-making such that by the time that they are at the point of care with the patient, they have a sense of nine out of 10 clinicians would land in this spot given this situation. So we won't necessarily um, come out and say, you know, follow this pathway, this algorithm, and Wagovi is indicated in, in all of these situations. Mm -hmm. But what we will want to do is inform the clinician so that they can be um, evidence-based and scientifically grounded in their decision-making at the point of care so the patient can understand um, this is what acceptable care looks like for obesity treatment. So, for example, we know that obesity is a chronic disease and requires chronic treatment. And if a, a, a patient is seeking care and they hear a provider or professional say, well, we're going to only think about doing this treatment for a few months and then stop, then that's a red flag and the patient should know this is not the standard of care. Long-term treatment, chronic therapy that may require, you know, changing or evolving that therapy over time. But that's what the that's the type of approaches that we will want to inform uh, for the, the provider. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Dr. Art, a couple of uh, moments ago, I think you just did a great job of clarifying for our audience uh, that's not clinical. Uh, some some are and some aren't. Uh, why these drugs work? This this idea of uh, people recognizing satiation or just when they're full, as we would say. Uh, but when it comes to uh, selecting different drugs, the Ozempic and uh, Wegovy, uh, maybe you could just elaborate just a little bit for our listeners. Uh, how are they different, and what are the side effects of each one? Do they different in their side effect profile? So fundamentally, 
Margaret, both of these drugs are the same thing. Okay. So they are both, um, if we use the generic term for the, both of the drugs, it's semaglutide. Um, that's the molecule, the name of the molecule. And the only difference between Ozempic and Wagovi is that Ozempic is indicated for or branded for use in type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. Its indication is for type 2 diabetes and the dose of Ozempic, the maximum dose that it goes up to is 2.0 milligrams. Uh, for Wagovi, same drug, but just branded for use in obesity treatment. Great. And it goes up to 2.4 milligrams as the maximum dose. Um, <clears throat> so otherwise, same side effect profile. Most people will experience some type of GI-related side effect, generally mild in nature, that tends to decline over time with continued use of the drug. Um, and that GI side effect tends to be mostly nausea, but some people have diarrhea or constipation. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And then um, generally speaking, um, as I said, as you slowly titrate the dose of the drug, people will tend to have um, and, and experience longer use of the drug. They tend to have fewer of those side effects. Um, but you will see the same reported side effects for Ozempic as you do for Wagovi. You know, well, thank you so much for clarifying that. I think that point about the indication uh, really being the difference is very helpful for people. Thanks. Now, all of those side effects really uh, are derived from clinical trials uh, and that Osempic, as I understand it, uh, trial only lasted two years. I'm wondering if you think that's long enough, and I, I'm not sure about Wagovia, so maybe you can uh, 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 give us the information on, on both of those. But uh, in the past, other drugs to treat obesity have been pulled because of adverse health effects. And I guess just trying to figure out uh, what, what's the right length, uh, particularly for mm. such important drugs that are going to have wide impact uh, uh, because of uh, the scope of the problem. Yeah, you're right. I think in the past, one of the things that um, has caused all of us to have a little bit of PTSD <laughs> is that, you know, we go all in on these new medications and we feel really excited about the potential impact. And then um, over time, we identify some problem that's crept up um, that with time and more um, experience and exposure, we start to see a signal that suggests a safety concern. Um, so, one of the things I think that makes us feel a little bit more optimistic here in this case and different is that um, these types of medications, GLP-1 medications, have been around in the diabetes space for actually quite some time. And so even though we might have clinical trials that go out to a two-year time frame, we've actually had post-market experience. So after the drug has been approved and in use um, for over five to 10 years now. Mm -hmm. And so we see that these molecules with prolonged use um, look to certainly be safe and even save lives um, in the space of diabetes treatment. And so there's ongoing clinical trials now related to cardiovascular outcomes that um, are for obesity in particular that we anticipate um, positive results. And if that happens and we see that treatment at the higher dose um, of the Wagovi um, in individuals with um, known risk factors for heart disease or heart disease um, actually reduces the risk of um, some type of cardiovascular event, then that really is a, a game changer when it comes to thinking about the safety mm -hmm. of the drug. Mm -hmm. 
That's very helpful. Well, I wonder uh, if I can uh, veer a little bit off of the uh, the drug itself and into what you're seeing in your patient population as people who are obese experience significant weight loss. Uh, are you seeing uh, impact on people's social, mental well-being, activity level, ability to engage in activities they couldn't before? You know, beyond the medical, are you seeing a change in, in impact on life and lifestyle for folks? Yeah, we're, we're seeing lots of um, important changes in quality of life for our patients. And I think this is one of the things that's really important and often underestimated in terms of impact that treatment of obesity has for, for our patient population. Um, a lot of people are dealing with, um, often in a very silent way, um, a lot of the negative consequences of excess weight gain. <clears throat> and that ranges from poor self-esteem and challenges with confidence to um, pain and inability to do the things that they want to do um, that make life fulfilling. And so we hear stories all the time about people who are able to comfortably take a, a trip um, in, a, in an airplane uh, for the first time in some time, or they've been able to have that nice vacation with the family and not sit on the sideline while everyone else is on the roller coaster, um, or just being able to do daily you know, life activities that we all take for granted, like being able to you know, wash your own clothes and clean your own home um, or take care of a, another family member. Um, those are the things that I think oftentimes when we live without obesity, we just take for granted. And people who have lived with obesity um, value um, the recovery of those uh, abilities for sure. You know, that's such a, a sensitive uh, insight into the struggles that people have. And I've, I've heard you talk about the sort of uh, the old approach, a sort of a moral approach of, you know, hey, get up and move uh, and not really understanding the larger set of consequences that or, or issues that people face uh, who are dealing with obesity. And I guess I want to sort of pull that thread and say, you know, there are roughly 110 million Americans eligible for anti-obesity medication. But given all the value that you just said, we've got Medicare, I believe, legally prohibited from paying for it. And also, both on 60 Minutes and I think Wall Street Journal, uh, both have reported that private insurers aren't covering it as well. So I'm wondering if you can just help us connect the dots of its benefits and also the uh, issues of uh, coverage, because it, it does seem to uh, greatly improve uh, the lives for many people in those uh, ways that you uh, just uh, illuminated. Yeah, so I, I think we're at a watershed moment. This is really sort of an inflection point, if you will, in thinking about the potential change in the landscape and how we conceptualize treatment of obesity. Um, for the longest, a lot of the, the basic thinking about how we treat obesity was rooted in the idea that, well, it's just a calorie imbalance and people are typically eating too much and exercising too little. And obviously, if we reverse that, then that will solve the problem. Um, and as we know that that clearly has not worked and it doesn't absolve us from um, continuing to focus on how we prevent excess weight gain and, and modify our environments in a way that make healthy living more 
um, easily attainable for a larger portion of people. But for those of us who have, you know, developed obesity and, and live with obesity, um, the that mantra and that that idea of eat less, move more just doesn't work. And we have to have a biological process that actually helps to deal with the core issue. And so this is at the, you know, at its core, uh, an issue at the brain level where the brain is not responding to this environment appropriately in terms of helping us to manage the, um, you know, energy dysregulation that has happened in this environment. So medications actually really do get at that core issue and they help the individual um, better respond to this environment and reduce intake in a way that um, allows for that individual to, to lose weight. And as our understanding has changed and evolved over time, we think that, yeah, our policies and the way we identify treatment and, and take care of patients um, should evolve with that. Um, and so this, this is why these types of conversations are so important because it helps us to highlight where our biased thinking in the past continues to have an impact on policy and influences decision-making around resource allocation currently. And we can change that. That is totally within our power to change that. And we know that if we can continue to have these conversations and expose people to this new information, that hopefully we will start to change hearts and minds and get people who are in the positions to make these decisions to understand the impact that um, the disease has and that, you know, we don't treat any other chronic disease in this way. And this uh, treatment should be on par with high blood pressure or heart disease or uh, any type of cancer that we treat. Are you familiar with any cost benefit studies that are underway now that would uh, uh, help inform uh, policymakers? Yeah, so there, there are actually a range of, of cost benefit studies that um, have been published in analyses that have been done. And, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people are concerned about right now is that, as you mentioned before, um, the cost of GLP-1s, the newer agents like Wagovi, um, um, are definitely really high, right? These these are drugs that are costing over $1,000 a month if you had to pay out of pocket. And someone's bearing that cost. And so, you know, payers, insurance companies, employers um, who are self-insured, they're definitely very hesitant to say, well, we're going to open up the pocketbook to um, – provide full coverage of that for everyone who might mm -hmm. be potentially eligible. And that's a scary number that comes up. Mm -hmm. But the the point that I would like to make is that not everyone needs that, that level of treatment. That's number one. Number two, we have plenty of other good options that have we've used successfully, you know, to this point and will continue to use um, that are definitely accessible for a lot of patients. It's just that these newer agents seem to be uh, a bit more potent for a larger group of people. And I think that when we think about how to do obesity treatment smartly, um, we can define ways and provide um, support for people to actually put together treatment plans that are cost effective. And we will continue to do research in terms of real world evidence and be able to identify in large populations of people who is, is actually going to see the cost savings as a result of treatment? Because mm -hmm. 
um, it's not everyone exactly that might be um, someone who's going to see cost savings in the short term, um, especially if you are otherwise relatively healthy, but you might have excess weight and benefit from that, say, in, in relation to quality of life. Well, certainly, uh, Dr. Art, another area of health policy and coverage that's been changing rapidly, perhaps the enduring uh, legacy of the COVID pandemic is telehealth, uh, and also mm. with it, um, the increased uh, availability and the coverage of remote patient monitoring as kind of an integral part of uh, caring pay for patients with chronic challenges. And I understand your practice uh, is using remote monitoring uh, to help provide some lifestyle therapy or interventions for those who are severely obese. Tell us, uh, how is this working? Uh, is it an adjunct uh, to the medical treatment? And, and what's your thoughts on the promise of uh, remote monitoring for patients? Yeah, so remote patient monitoring is really central to everything that we do in our center. Um, and the reason it's so important is it's really, it gives us a bird's eye view, if you will, of what's happening within the patient's day-to-day uh, -day journey um, as they are, you know, trying to get healthy, lose weight, improve lifestyle, make changes um, in the course of their treatment plan. It also enables us to be able to provide telehealth um, with confidence about what the outcome is. It just really enables us to be mm -hmm. able to provide a different level of care, even though the patient is not coming into the office. Well, Dr. Ardwala, we've got you with us. I'd like your uh, thoughts on, on just one more thing before we close. Uh, you know, over the, the uh, arc of time, different measures in practice uh, sometimes get challenged as to how valid they are. And that seems to be going on right now with uh, BMI or body mass index. Uh, many uh, in the field have expressed doubts about the effectiveness or the usefulness of BMI for people of all races and ethnicities and some critics uh, who believe that BMI uh, as a measure adversely affects Americans of color, uh, maybe by shaping the diagnoses and treatments they receive. We'd love to give you a chance to comment on that before we close. Yeah, sure. So I think that body mass index is definitely useful in some ways. It's an epidemiologic tool. It actually helps us with all the stats that Mark led off the uh, conversation with in terms of understanding the size of our population and, and on average and, and what that looks like. Um, but it, it is not a diagnostic tool in and of itself. So as I talked about before, obesity is a combination of looking at excess body weight, excess fat, and health consequences related to that. And so you can't get that simply from the number. You can have two people in front of you that have a very different BMI, and they got there in very different trajectories. One could go from a BMI of 40 to 35, the other could go from 30 to 35, and they would have very different health profiles as a result of the trajectory of the weight change. So when we look at BMI clinically, it is a screening tool that actually is part of a um, additional number of variables that help us to put together a whole picture of the patient. I think the idea that BMI is biased in some way or another, um, I think is there's a lot more nuance to that that conversation. Mm -hmm. and, in, and my take on that is that I think um, if we were to play out the idea that BMI were significantly biased in one way or another, there might be unintended consequences in terms of underdiagnosis, lack of engagement, even more so than what we already know 
um, in terms of engaging African-American populations, for example, around the treatment of, of obesity and helping people understand the health consequences that might be um, in the future for them. So I think short story is BMI is not exactly perfect, but it's not meant to be a diagnostic tool. Mm -hmm. It's a screening tool. And we need more research to define um, a better marker of what we actually mean when we say energy imbalance and the things that lead to obesity and excess weight gain. Well, Dr. Ard, thank you so much for joining us today, for your commitment to this area, to the research and scholarship that you bring to your work. Uh, thanks to our audience. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for email updates. Our address is chcradio.com. Thank you again, Dr. Ard. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.